Well, I'd like to begin again with just a reading from God's Word. This is from 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, Basically, nobody will inherit the kingdom of God. (laughs) And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I'd like you to imagine being a kid growing up and... You just, you're, you're in elementary school, you're hanging out with all your friends, you're doing just whatever elementary cool, uh, kids do, and then you start to notice some of the older kids talking about the opposite sex. They start talking about the cute guys, or they start talking about the girls that are growing breasts and entering puberty, and there's these huge discussions. And you become aware of it, and you're growing up inside of it, but in your own, in your own heart, in your own mind, you keep asking yourself the question, I wonder when I'm going to start feeling about the opposite sex, the way that all of my friends start talking about the opposite sex. And so you wait and you wait and you look around and you can see how that your friends would find a particular feminine form attractive or a particular masculine form attractive, but you don't feel that yourselves. In your own heart, you have this sense The way they talk about the opposite sex, that's how I feel about the same sex. A very, very, and then you try and brush it out of your mind. No, it just must not have happened to me yet, or it's going to kick in later, and it doesn't kick in later. You start thinking to yourself, oh, I I know what the word for this is, but I'm not sure I want this. I think this is what they call being gay. And particularly if you grew up in a Christian home with just wonderful parents who are around you and parents who probably have never really talked about this with you and you start asking yourself, maybe if I go forward enough times and have them pray for me and I just use generic language like I'm struggling with purity or I'm struggling with relationships or friends, maybe if they touch me, something will flow through their hands and this will leave my body. But it just doesn't. And maybe every night you get on your knees and you say, God, please change me. Change me. I don't want this. I didn't ask for this. I've heard preachers talk about this. I did a YouTube search, and when I searched this, it was not encouraging. And uh, God, please make this go away. But over the course of time, it doesn't go away, and you eventually come to terms with yourself. I actually think I am attracted to people of the same sex. I think I'm gay. I think I'm gay. You imagine that experience? Years and years and years of quiet wrestling with this issue. Years feeling like you don't want to say this to your parents because you're worried they're not going to like you or they're going to think of you weirdly or differently. Imagine what your friends are going to say in the locker rooms at school or what kids will post online and maybe you'll get a reputation. You feel all of the swirling tension around you and then eventually you're like, I just have to accept this. This is a reality for me. This is the experience of millions of Christians, millions of Christians around the world. P. 
people grow up this way and the church has had such a, a horrific relationship around this. The Bible seems to have done so much damage and it's caused so many mental health issues for the gay community. But how can this be good news? How can we understand the Bible? How can we speak into this amidst all of the, the frustration that people feel personally and our larger culture expresses? And then put on top of that all the debates floating around this and it just gets really, really hard. People get angry. I read an article about a man who sued the NIV translation, the publishers of the NIV translation, for $70 million because he felt the word homosexual that was used in their translation caused 20 years of psychological pain and hurt for his understanding of himself and he was seeking damages. Now, although the case was dismissed, it was still like a condensed symbol of a larger issue, which is people feel like the way that the Bible and the Christian church has treated gay people has caused tremendous harm. And so I want to give a few introductory comments before we begin to make our way through history and the text and perhaps some pastoral concerns, just to say I'm aware that that's in many ways how people have been treated and how they feel. I also acknowledge that I am a straight, white, married, male dude here. I acknowledge that. I'm not the ideal candidate to be talking about this, but as a pastor, I have a biblical responsibility to share God's Word on issues, even though they may not be ones that I've personally struggled with. So I have tried to read widely on this. I've tried to read on both sides of the debate. And what I'm going to present to you today is going to be reliant on scholarship in many ways, but I hope that you will see that this is at least a thoughtful attempt to respond biblically and historically to what Jesus says about gay relationships in His Word. I also want to just remind us here that this is not, uh, uh, this is not a message for the culture at large. This is a conversation about how followers of Jesus make sense of God's Word and live in the way of Jesus responding to this issue. So my assumption is primarily that those listening to this are Christians. So if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, perhaps use this as an opportunity for sociological research onto Christian ethical practices or something like that. I also want to just give a quick note about language that's used in this discussion. There's normally ways that this language is framed that I don't find particularly helpful and I think contains power dynamics even how it's framed. So using language like affirming or non-affirming. These feel like loaded terms to me that are not helpful and draw boundaries before the discussion begins. In an attempt to respond to this, people have used nobler language like classical and revisionist. And to me, again, these feel like positions that carry power dynamics. So I have, upon reading as many books as I can, I want to use the phrase that I think are the, the clearest descriptors around this issue and understanding God's Word on it, and they are the historic position and the progressive position. And my goal, and, and my goal going through this uh, study this morning, will be to fairly, to accurately, sorry, to accurately and charitably present the progressive position in a way that they would recognize and affirm and then respond to it from the historic position that the church has always held. But I want to be charitable in my language and fair in the way I present the understanding of these texts before I respond to them. Now, before we jump into this, I want you to jot down three questions because to me, there's three questions that followers of Jesus are trying to answer in relation to gay relationships. 
And these questions are often rarely acknowledged or thought through. We start with emotions or we start with culture rather than trying to frame up the tell us of these arguments. So here's the first one. What is my definition of a godly marriage in human sexuality? What is that? How did I get this definition? What's informed my thinking and my theology, my sociology around this? And for followers of Jesus, how do the Scriptures support this definition that I have arrived at? And that's what I'm going to attempt to do today, to, to talk about what I believe godly marriage and sexuality is, how we arrive at this definition through God's Word and how His Word ultimately supports it. So I want to do this in three parts today. The first part is I want to talk about how we got here culturally and historically to the moment that we're in. Secondly, I want to talk about what the Bible actually says about same-sex relationships. And then thirdly, how followers of Jesus can love and serve, include and minister to those who describe themselves as gay. So let's jump in. Part one, how we got here. I'm sure you're aware of this, but gay relationships have been included in a framework of war. There has been a culture war used by both the right and the left related to the issue of gay relationships. And there has been major shifts and changes in our world and understanding because of this war. It's taken place at a dizzying rate of speed that is very hard to keep up with. And the metaphors on both sides have been violent and provocative. One sociologist said this, everything is about sex except sex, which is about power. And in this particular passage, you will see that played out. So I want to start by one side of this dynamic, those who view gay relationships under the category of a justice issue. For those excluding the gay community from participation in every form of life, including the church, is an issue of justice. It is in, it's unjust, it's unjust to be able to describe people this way. And I'm talking primarily from a cultural and sociological perspective, not a religious perspective. The United States has a long tradition of claiming rights and inclusion for all people, but a poor track record of making good on its promise. We have the sexual revolution, much of which pushed forward the exclusion of minorities from participation in larger culture. And during the birth of the sexual revolution, which was on the heels of racial reconciliation and social justice movements, particularly riots around Vietnam, the gay community realized America was psychologically ripe for a revolution of their understanding of human sexuality. There was an event that happened down in the village in the city where I live called the Stonewall Riots. The Stonewall riots were six, day of riot, six days of riots sparked by police action in the early morning of June 28, 1969 against a popular Greenwich Village gay bar, the Stonewall Inn. And it constituted, as what one scholar says, a homosexual shot heard around the world that transformed an American subculture. And if you were to go there and stand in front of the Stonewall Inn, which I've done many times, and stand in front of the, the National Monument that remembers the, the events that happened there, this became the moment where people said justice must be done for the gay community. One of the efforts that came out of this was the Gay Liberation Front. Notice the war language here. And in 1973, they launched a War with Normalcy campaign. And their vision was to bring gay sexuality to bear on heterosexuality in the United States. Now, at the time, the culture as a whole was conservative, and it was actually an ineffective movement. It was seen as hostile and coercive, and it accounted protest and resistance in response to its efforts. Several years later, the AIDS epidemic began to 
impact the gay community. It wreaked havoc and decimated gay populations in major urban areas. And people realized that this, that the gay community not only had the opportunity for revolution based on social movements, but also faced an existential threat, its own survival and existence, in light of what the AIDS epidemic was doing. So in February of 1988, a war conference was called of 175 leading gay activists representing organizations from across the land that convened in Warrington, Virginia, near D.C., to establish a four-point agenda for the gay movement. After that meeting, Harvard-trained social scientists and gay activists Marshall Kirk and Hunter Masden wrote a homosexual manifesto that proposed dismissing the movement's outworn techniques in favor of carefully calculated public relations propaganda, laying groundwork for the next stage of the gay revolution and ultimately its victory over bigotry. So they put out a book, and the book is called After the Ball. It's $89.95 on Amazon. It's out of print, very hard to get. So I've... In almost every audience I've asked, I've rarely found anyone who's read it. Has anybody read After the Ball? One person. Thank you. It's a staggering book to understand because it's almost like reverse engineering how we arrived where we are. And it makes you realize that much of what our culture believes was not a logical progression, but a carefully manufactured campaign of propaganda by world-class PR agents. Their language, not mine. And in After the Ball, they had a three-pronged strategy to change America's understanding of gay relationships. Desensitize the American people, jam any dissent to anybody who opposes gay relationships, and convert popular opinion to believe that this is a good thing. So here's, now I'm quoting from the book, Part one, changing their strategy, desensitize the American population to gay relationships. We need a continuous flood of gay-related advertising presented in the least offensive fashion possible. If straights can't shut off the shower, they may at least eventually get used to being wet. The main thing is to talk about gayness until the issue becomes thoroughly tiresome. Seek desensitization and nothing more. If you can get straights to think homosexuality is just another thing, meriting no more than a shrug of the shoulders, then your battle for legal and social rights is virtually won. Now, I know the term homosexual can be controversial. I'm using this historically quoted from the book and timer in which it was written. Desensitize the American people with a continuous flood of gay-related messaging. Part two, jam those who oppose our movement. Violently, by any means necessary, block any dissent to our messaging. Tim Gill, there's an article that was written in Rolling Stone here, was a gay activist who amassed a fortune of approximately $500 million, who became the most important gay activist in the world financially. He contributed tremendous sums of money to establishing, through advertising and legal and political forces, gay rights in the United States of America. And he had a phrase in here, an interesting phrase, anybody who opposes us must be punished. We will punish the wicked. So this is now a term of moral superiority. Righteousness is established in gay rights and anybody opposes us is seen as wicked who must be pushed. This manifests itself. Any dissent against the full affirmation and acceptance of gay relationships is is penalized and excluded from participation in the public square. And there's example after example where this can be shown. Then the ultimate goal, lastly, is to convert the American 
opinion around gay relationships to normalcy and full acceptance. I was making a documentary uh, reasonably early in the 2000s around how social movements spread through society. It was based on Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point. I was doing research in New York and California. It was primarily around media. And so I was actually trying to study how the gay community had utilized the media to transform Americans' perception and understanding. So I'm in front of the Stonewall Inn with a couple of friends, a camera crew, and we're sitting there and here I am talking in front of the Stonewall Inn. Uh, a guy walks past and says to us, hey, are you doing a documentary on the Stonewall riots? And I was like, well, it's actually a part of a film that we're making. They're like, that's incredible. There's a wonderful book at the Barnes & Noble. If you go over there, a local author who was there for the riots has written his account of it. I was like, oh, that's amazing. So we pack up our gear. We head over to the Barnes & Noble. I go to the Barnes & Noble. I find the book. While I'm holding the book, another guy walks past and says, oh, that's an amazing book. My friend actually wrote it. I see that you have camera gear. Would you like to interview the guy who wrote it? So half an hour later, I'm in the apartment in the West Village of one of the eyewitness leading experts of the Stonewall and their strategy to convert American opinion regarding same-sex relationships. So, and he was a very, very gracious and kind, hospitable man. He said this, we had a three-pronged approach, three fronts on which we were waging a war with American culture. Number one was the American Psychological Association. We would protest until homosexuality was removed as a disorder amongst the American Psychological Association. You should research how that actually happened in terms of the letter writing campaign. Secondly, legal. We wanted to remove all sodomy laws and establish legal precedents in every area of society to undo and then to establish rights for gay people. And then our third front was was on the church. It was getting homosexuality to be removed as a list of, on the list of sins. I said, well, how's it going? And I said, well, actually, the APA one was, was uh, not that challenging. The legal one is well underway. The biggest problem we're having is the church. We just can't get the church to remove homosexuality as being seen as a sin. Lobbying, education, media law, art, entertainment, family business, sports, and therapy all came under the weight of the campaign the war on normalcy. Conversion of the, American, the average American's emotions, mind, and will through a planned psychological attack in the form of propaganda fed to the nation via the media is our strategy, quote, after the ball. The public should be persuaded that gays are victims of circumstance, that they no more choose their sexual orientation than their height. For all practical purposes, gays should be considered to have been born gay, even though sexual orientation for most humans seems to be the product of a complex interaction between innate predispositions and environmental factors during childhood and early adolescence. To suggest in public that homosexuality might be chosen is to open the can of worms labelled moral choice and sin and give the religious right a stick to beat us with. First, you get a foot in the door by being as similar as possible, then and only then, with your one little difference, orientation is finally accepted. Can you start dragging in your other peculiarities one by one? You hammer in the wedge narrow and first, as the saying goes, allow the camel's nose beneath your tent and the whole body will soon follow. A cultural vision of being gay is normal, therefore Every behavior and practice of any sexual minority must be accepted as normal too. This was a planned strategic campaign by gay activists working in every sphere of society to change American opinion on the issue of same-sex relationships. 
Andrew Sullivan, himself a gay man, somewhat conservative gay man, wrote an article entitled this, Undoing Our Good Work. He asked the question, at which point do we stop and acknowledge we won? How much further do we need to push this? This has been an incredibly effective transformation of American society. So this is one view. It's unjust, therefore it must be changed. On the other side of things, at the same time that this is happening, you have the rise of the religious right. And the religious right's vision was basically, we need a conservative agenda for American culture based on God's Word. This is about an issue. This is immorality that is invading the righteousness of our nation. The Moral Majority was founded by Jerry Falwell primarily and a group of other Christian leaders. Some of the issues for which the Moral Majority campaigned included promotion of a traditional vision of family life, opposition to media outlets that it claimed promoted an anti-family agenda, opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment and Strategic Arms Limitation Talks, opposition to state recognition or acceptance of homosexual acts, prohibition of abortion even in cases involving incest, rape, or in pregnancies where the life of the mother was at stake, support for Christian prayer in schools, and marketing to Jews and other non-Christians for conversion to conservative Christianity. This is the other side of the culture war. Quote, AIDS is not just punishment for homosexuals, it is God's punishment for the society that tolerates homosexuals. The idea that religion and politics don't mix was invented by the devil to keep Christians from running their own country. Someone must not be afraid to say moral perversion is wrong. If we do not act now, homosexuals will own America. If you and I do not speak up now, this homosexual steamroller will literally crush all decent men, women, and children who get in its way, and our nation will pay a terrible price. Again, the intensity of language and war rhetoric. Tinky Winky is gay. Tinky Winky is gay? Much of the triumph, much of the triumph of the religious right was DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act. And the president who signed the Defense of Marriage Act was Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton signing the Defense of Marriage Act. What a lot of people failed to realize is that Paul, in a culture dealing with this, doesn't have this approach. In 1 Corinthians 5, 12, he says this, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? You are to judge those inside the church, but not those outside the church. This results in the book that was written several years ago called Unchristian, where the number one cultural understanding of Christians was they're homophobic and too politically motivated, followed up by a good book called, uh, an excellent book, a follow-up uh, to Unchristian called Good Faith, which says that most Christians today are perceived as irrelevant and extreme, nothing to do with reality, horribly extreme when they do engage. And then ultimately a book written in that same trio called You Lost Me, Why We Are Basically Hemorrhaging a Generation Out of Church. The result of this culture war, many of you feel this, is just confusion, embarrassment, and exhaustion. One of my friends, one of my gay friends who was leaving our church, said this to me, 
I don't want to need a, read another book on Hebrew words from the Old Testament. I don't care anymore about Greco-Roman homosexual practice. I'm just exhausted and I'm done. And he left. Culture wars produce casualties. And that's what we're experiencing right now. You, trying to follow Jesus at this time of history, live on a battlefield where people are filled with shrapnel and many people have lost their faith in the process. So I say all of that just to sort of place us and understand the exhaustion and the anger and the confusion related to this issue. Now, with all of that in mind, when someone opens a Bible and wants to begin to talk about what the Bible says about this issue, it becomes very, very challenging. And based on this cultural war, people basically approach the Scriptures with presuppositions. And I want to lay out two of those today. The way of understanding what, uh, an interpretive lens for understanding God's Word was put forth by the Wesleyans, and it's known as the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. And it basically says there's four ways we understand God's will on any issue. You have tradition, and you have experience, and you have reason, and you have Scripture. And it's the combination of these four things that help us understand God's will in, on any issue in any given moment. But I want you to see the nature of this. In the world we live in today, because there's been so much damage and so much pain, a lot of people don't care what the Bible says or care what the church says primarily. They start with their individual experience or the experience of their gay friend. And then they begin to reason based on their experience what is a natural loving response. And then through that they begin to often evaluate or critique how the church has held this issue and ultimately that is imported into their understanding interpretation of Scripture. And the heart behind this is it's a heart of love for people, it's a heart of pastoral concern and it sees the individual, not the issue as a whole. The challenge with that, though, is that historically, the church has actually reversed that order. The church has believed that we actually start with the Scriptures, and then 2,000 years of people who have followed Jesus, and then we use reason, and ultimately we bring that to bear on our own experience. And those from that framework have cared about truth and principles and faithfulness. But I just pause to ask yourself, before we go through these verses, what's your beginning point? What's your beginning point? It's important to have an awareness of where we're coming from when we approach the Bible. So as much as possible, even though it's impossible, we have an understanding that we have a bias towards a position. Now, what I want to do in light of that then is begin to make our way through the particular texts that address same-sex relationships in the Scriptures. I'm not here today to try, and, to try and say, here's what I think about gay relationships. What do you think about gay relationships? I'm trying to come under the authority of the Christian church, which for 2,000 years has had an opinion, an authoritative position on this issue, and then try and walk through that. So if you can, try and drop the me versus you approach and let's walk through the Scriptures together and see what God's Word says on these issues. I'm going to talk from the book of Genesis. I'm going to talk through Leviticus. I'm going to talk through the book of Romans. We're going to spend some time in First uh, Timothy and then 1 Corinthians. We're going to have some Jesus. And then at the end, I'm going to close with some pastoral considerations. So let's begin where the Bible begins in the book of Genesis that helps us understand gay relationships and same-sex relationships biblically. Genesis chapter 2. 
The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. And he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. They shall become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, whenever you read Genesis, people start popping up science and human pairings. Just, it's not a science book. Okay, Let's just start where the scriptures start. This is a poetic, but it's intended to be authoritative and accurate. That's why it's in there, about the development of human sexuality, God's design, the relationship between creator and created being. And in the account of the story, there's a series of pairings and there's a series of complementary shifts. But when it comes to Adam... He can't find the mate that he needs. And so God creates someone and brings it to him. Now, the progressive opinion on the creation account says this. What Adam needed was not necessarily a woman, but he needed a human, not an animal. This is about humanities rather than species. It was, it was humanity, not gender, that made her suitable. For gay people, opposite-gendered people are not suitable but other humans are. Therefore, it's not about Adam and Eve, but complementary helpers. But one scholar says this, but is Eve's humanist the only thing that qualified her as a suitable helper? Her femaleness actually seems to have played a role as well. The Hebrew word translated suitable by the NIV is konegdo, and it's, the only here, it's here in the Old Testament that it is used, Genesis 2.18 and 2.20. Connecto is a somewhat difficult to translate phrase since it's the compound word made up of two words, K, which means as or like, and negative, which means opposite, against, or in front of. Together, the word means something like as opposite him or like against him. It's a complex word that captures how it is that Eve can qualify as the perfect partner for Adam. The relevant point, if it was simply Eve's humanness that made her a helper, then the word K, like, would have been just fine. The verse would then read, I will make a helper like K, him. But to make the point that Adam needed not just another human, but a different sort of human, a female, God used the word konegdo. The word potentially conveys both similarity and dissimilarity. Eve is a human and not an animal, which is why she is like Adam, but she's also a female and not a male, which is why she is different than Adam or negative opposite him. So no longer are we just talking about Adam and Eve in Genesis 2.24. This understanding is God's basic design for marriage, which is quoted again and again through the Scriptures by Christ himself whenever human relationships are put together. So from Genesis, we see three things seem to be necessary for marriage and God-approved relationships. Both partners need to be human. Both partners need to come from different families. And Konegdo, both partners need to display sexual difference. There has to be an otherness. God in creation, light and darkness, earth and sky, sun and moon, land and sea, humans and animals. And the pinnacle of God's creation stands the masterpiece, male and female. 
God created mankind... Male and female, he created them, Genesis 1.27. Creation is not uniform, but a display of differences interacting with each other. And the height of creation, the very good, is the astonishing union of otherness. So Genesis seems to teach, not that we need someone like us, we need difference and complementarity in it. Now the next passages, Leviticus 18 and 20, are the passages that seem to be lightning bolt passages. These are the ones that are quoted the most and draw the most resistance and reluctance, particularly with the intensity of language associated with them. Leviticus 18 and then Leviticus 20. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Leviticus 20, if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They're to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Strong language. The context of this passage is important. The children of Israel are now leaving hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt, heading into the promised land. And God wants them to have a different culture, a different ethical vision, and different, different practices that would make them holy and set them apart from the nations around them. This is the central theme of Leviticus. The word holy or holiness occurs 87 times in Leviticus. Holiness is the book's overarching theme. The whole system of Israel worship is about a holy God. That is its starting place. You have holy people, the priests, with holy clothes in a holy land, at a holy place, using holy utensils and holy objects, celebrating holy days, living by a holy law, so they can be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Do you get a theme? It's about holiness. From chapter 17 onwards, how they live this out then is called the holiness code. Because it details how the Israelites will live as holy people in contrast to the nations around them. And this summarizes in Leviticus 19.2, which gives the whole command and motivation its structure. You should be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, in this passage, the progressive position makes three arguments that says these no longer apply to same-sex relationships as we talk about today. Number one, the Old Testament passages are literally not informative for us around ethics and morality. Number two, these passages are referring to men being treated like women, and it was a dishonorable thing in a patriarchal society, so it's shame-based. And thirdly, this is condemning exploitive, idolatrous sex, not loving monogamous relationships. So I want to respond to these things. As followers of Jesus... And Christ certainly didn't do this. Paul hasn't done this. Just because we're under the new covenant, we don't throw the Old Testament out. Yes, there's parts of it like mixed cloth and eating pork or shellfish, plowing fields at certain times, that no longer apply to us in the same ways, but the book is still authoritative and forms our ethical understanding. There is no indication from the New Testament that Leviticus should be treated as obscure or peripheral to our moral understanding. Jesus referred to Leviticus 19, 18 in the middle of these two verses more than any other verse in the Old Testament and the New Testament refers to it 10 times. Likewise, both Peter and Paul quoted Leviticus as part of their summons to holiness in 2 Corinthians 6, quoting Leviticus 26, 1 Peter, just too many verses there. The authors of the New Testament did not hesitate to turn to Leviticus, the preeminent book around holiness in their understanding to find instruction and exhortation for godly living in the New Covenant. 
Paul found in Leviticus moral obligations still binding on the Christian, including their sexual ethic. And I want to give you an example of this. So what I want you to see here is that Leviticus 18 and 20 is one summation of text. It's one pillar of teaching. In the same way that the Sermon on the Mount is one section of teaching, Leviticus 18 and 20 are one section of teaching. And here's moral instructions that are included in here. Incest, adultery, child sacrifice, bestiality, theft, lying, taking the Lord's name in vain, oppressing your neighbor, cursing the deaf, showing partiality in the court of law, slander, hating your brother, making your daughter a prostitute, turning to witches or necromancers. And you can add to this list of commands, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so, so many of the commands that we believe are still relevant in our discipleship today are actually informed and mentioned in Leviticus but not mentioned in the New Testament. We still find it as moral instruction. Now, theologians have traditionally understood the Old Testament law in three categories, the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. This is not a forced construction on the Old Testament. This is a natural understanding of how the law is nuanced and plays out as it's interpreted through time. The moral law is true for all people in all places and in all times and reflects God's will. The ceremonial law was the law regarding sacrifice and their participation under the old covenant before God. And the civil law was what informed themselves as a theocracy and as a nation. But because we are no longer in a nation and because we are no longer under a a ceremonial sacrificial system because of Jesus, those parts no longer apply to us. But the moral, timeless law of God makes its way through. The moral law in Leviticus 18 and 20 contains many of the most important laws around sexuality that differentiate us from the world around us, including incest, adultery, bestiality, and the sexual trafficking of other people. Many of the prohibitions that are mentioned here are designed to protect us. And so we can't just say those passages don't apply to us when they apply clearly for the New Testament writers and are obviously still important in how we build our lives today. Now, the second critique is that this isn't talking about mutual relationships, but what's being contemned here is the feminization of the passive partner in this passage doesn't seem to hold up for two reasons. Number one, Genesis, of all the other creation, creation accounts in the ancient Near East, holds dignity and a high value for women. So women are elevated as equals to men in the creation account, rare from any other creation account in the ancient Near East. And then secondly, the language in this passage is not coercive language, but a language of mutuality. In the Mosaic law, if a woman was sexually abused or taken by another man, there was no punishment assigned to the woman who was a victim, only to the man who did the victimization. But in this passage here, both parties are condemned as equal and willing participants. There's no suggestion in these Levitical passages that we're talking about only a narrow type of coercive sexual behavior as in the fact that the term as with a woman is used to make sense of this here, the point is that God doesn't want sexual relations between people of the same sex because it violates his holiness and his vision. So when the arguments are used, Leviticus and these verses don't count anymore because they're irrelevant. This seems to me a very, very strained position biblically and like that God does want us to draw holiness from the nature of his character expressed in the Old Testament. Now, when you move to the New Testament, Romans chapter 1, we're going to bump into a passage of Scripture that in some ways is, is, 
I, I, it's like Paul's greatest theological argument. Romans, Romans is a breathtaking and beautiful book, but it's also large and weighty and complex. Whenever I read the book of Romans, I often just try and think about Paul having all of this tucked away in his head and then just jotting a few thoughts down. <laughs> it's extraordinary what was in there and actually what came out connected to it. Now, the context of the passage that we're going to talk about is in the first part of Romans, Romans chapter 1. The context of Romans 1 through 3 is important for our understanding of the book of Romans because Paul is launching an argument beginning in Romans 1.18 that ends in Romans 3.26, which basically says that without Jesus, all of us are guilty before God. The first part, 1.18 through 32, sums up the sins of the Gentiles. The second part, 2.1 through 29, accuses the Jews of being just as wicked as the Gentiles. And since we are all under sin... We are guilty before God. What's worse is that trying to earn our justification by obeying the law, he critiques this in 3.19 through 20, shows that none of us can do that. And the whole point of this is to point towards God's grace expressed to us in Jesus. So whatever we've done, Jew, gentle, gay, straight, murderer or moralist, porn addict or pride addict, it's been put into a coffin and sent away as dead and now we have life in Jesus. This is the context of the passage. Now, in Romans 1, when Paul begins his critique of Gentile sexuality and their understanding, three shifts happen in this text. Number one, it's a shift for the valuing of creation and the denial of the fact that there's a creator. Number two, the substitution of God then for the priority of the self. And then the shift he's making is that when you do that, when you substitute self for God, that which is unnatural becomes natural. So Romans 1, 24 through 27 says this, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised, amen. Because of this... God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their, their error. This is a very, very strong passage. And you can imagine in some sense Paul walking through the city of Rome and looking around and just saying, what are we doing here? Now, the key issue in this passage that I want you to see this too, which is, what is the desire that's driving this kind of sex? And is it natural? And number two, what is the nature of these kinds of sexual relationships? So the progressive position on this issue has two responses. Number one, this is about heterosexual excess. This is what's being addressed in this passage. These were people who had sexual appetites that were out of control and they were so sexually promiscuous and their desires were burning with such intensity that they went outside of their normal relationships in a lust-fueled desire for sexual variation. And that secondly, the kind of sex that's happening here is an exploitive sex by nature. It's masters and slaves, prostitutions and cowboys. There's a weird, weird power dynamic the sex is ultimately coercive. The, the language and idea here doesn't reflect loving, committed relationships. Paul's not critiquing same-sex love, but the abuse of power and the commodification of people in same-sex relationships. And to be fair, many followers of Jesus who would describe themselves gay read, as gay, read Romans 1 and go, that does not reflect me. 
And I hear that and I agree with that. The historic position of the church and the response to this understanding, again, asking these two questions right here about the nature of the sexuality and who's involved in it, responds this way. The sin, when we're talking about nature here, the sin is against nature as seen in Genesis and not heterosexual excess. Paul's not arguing against heterosexual excess in these passages. He's arguing against people not applying and living by God's design according to the book of Genesis. Paul salts his arguments. He fills his arguments in Romans 1 with allusions to the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 verse 6. Earlier, Paul said that God had been revealing himself ever since the creation of the world. Paul refers to God as the creator in Romans 1.25, which points the readers back to Genesis. The reader in Genesis 1 and 2 again sees the nature of males and females in the text. So this is a concept when people try and understand the context of what's being applied that scholars use called intertextual echoes. That when you read the passage, you ask the question, where have I seen that before? So if we can go to this passage here, on the top, we have Paul in Romans chapter 1, and in the bottom, we have Genesis 1 trans- translated from the Septuagint. And you see again, if you were to ask Paul, what are you talking about in Romans 1? Is this heterosexual excess, or is the fact that they're going against nature what God has designed in Genesis chapter 1? I mean, you look at these passages back to back, it seems... Very, very clear to me, with at least strong indicators, that Paul's reference point here is not heterosexual excess, but God's creation intent and the violation of it. The language points to a creator. It points to God's will and plan in human sexuality by God's design as male and female, and this seems to be what he's addressing. Secondly, this is not just, so what is, what is the nature of the relationships, heterosexual excess or variation from God's design? I believe it, it shows in a very strong direction it's God's design. And secondly, what is the nature of these relationships? It's not that they're coercive, but God is rejecting the same-sex orientation of them. The emphasis on exchange makes clear that Paul is thinking of homosexual activity in general and not just a bad kind of homosexuality. The issue cannot be pederasty, which is man-boy relationships, because there is no record of adult youth sexual intimacy among women or a power dynamic in the ancient world. True, it existed among men, but not amongst women. And so Paul's critique here of both male and female same-sex relationships is tied to the fact, not that there's a power dynamic, but they violate God's design in creation. And it also says that those committing the acts were consumed with passion for one another. The language implies mutuality in the sexual encounters. The honest interpreter should recognize how general Paul's language is. He doesn't describe homosexual prostitution, men having sex with boys or reckless orgies, nor does he bemoan the passive partner in male-male sexual encounters, as many of his Greco-Roman contemporaries did. Paul doesn't draw attention to violating the social pecking order of the Roman class system as other authors did. And contrary to the opinion of modern scholars, Paul does not showcase a low view of women here. Rather, Paul uses basic terms and language of mutuality, male and female, natural and unnatural, one another to describe consensual same-sex acts. Lewis Crompton, who is 
not a conservative any stretch of the word, says this. According to one interpretation, Paul's words were not directed at bona fide homosexuals in committed relationships. But such a reading, however well-intentioned, seems strained and unhistorical. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstance. The idea that homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any other Jew or really Christian. Gender is the point, not orientation or exploitation or domination. The issues of exchanging the natural relationships between a man and a woman for unnatural sex between people of the same gender. So Paul addresses this in the book of Romans. That's the framing of that passage. Now as we move, are you all still with me? As we, good. As we move through... 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy, we come across these two passages. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? With the one we read earlier, don't be deceived. The sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Timothy 1, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which is entrusted to me. Again, the context of this passage. Paul is primarily, in the first passage, speaking to the Corinthians, the second passage, he's talking to Timothy, who is preaching in Ephesus. And in these words here, the phrase that's used, uh, homosexuality or men who have sex with men in this passage, is a challenging word because it's used almost nowhere else in historical literature. There's very little context, and at any time there's very little context, this leads to tons of dispute about meaning. Basically, what he does here is he's referencing two words, malakoi, which in the Greek literally means soft, and arsenokoitai, which means men who bed or men who lie with other men. And this passage, as scholars have wrestled with how to translate this, has caused tremendous harm just because of how the language has been used. So here's a chart here of all the different ways that different interpretations have put this out here. And so depending on what people have wrestled with at different points of time, this can be very, very confusing as to what's actually being addressed. So you have a word with not a lot of historical context being translated in a lot of ways that many people struggle to make sense of what's even being talked about. The progressive view on this says this, the language is unclear, so we cannot know what's actually being addressed. We can't know if it's committed same-sex monogamous relationships. We can't know if it's exploited. So we, we can't have any sort of confidence is actually condemning what we're talking about in modern society. There's no examples of arsenokoitai in surviving Greek literature prior to Paul's use of the term. The word is this compound word, which again further complicates the understanding. Therefore, in light of this, they say it's probably speaking about exploitive relationships and probably cold boys and prostitution in response. Some affirming scholars say that the Malakoi are cold boys who sell themselves to other men, and the Asnakoitais are the men who hire out the Malakoi. 
Others say that 1 Corinthians 6, 9 is referring to pederasty, which is not incidentally pedophilia, that boys were traditionally older than what we would think of as pedophilia, but this was an elaborate courting process between teenage boys that was built within the Greco-Roman understanding of how someone progressed and was developed in male culture. So, the words are really complex, and secondly, it's probably referring to exploitation that we know about. Therefore, these passages here can't be talking about what we think of when we think of modern relationships. Now, the historic response to this is, is this. The language is not unclear. It's compellingly and clearly taken from the Old Testament. When you look again at the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament used by Jews in the first century, here's what you see. Leviticus 18, meta arsenos, and then koiten at the end, and then Leviticus, arsenos koiten, And in Paul, a trained Jewish rabbi with a mastery of the law, when he's using his Jewish understanding to interpret modern sexuality as he was experiencing, it seems very, very clear that he takes these two phrases in his Torah-shaped understanding of sexuality and coins a word used in the New Testament that is clearly understood. So his word, asnakoitai, when you put them together, seems clearly derived by a Jewish scholar, a master of the law, using the moral code, which was his framework of how to understand relationships, expressed in the New Testament when he's writing pastorally to how people to think of these relationships. This understanding of Malakoi and Asnakoi outlined above fits with the consensus of modern English translations, fits with the ethic of the Old Testament, fits with Paul's training as a Jewish scholar, and most importantly, fits within the context of Paul's argument. It's as if in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is saying, don't be deceived, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. This includes those who have sex as a part of a pagan ritual, those who have sex with someone other than their spouse, men who play the passive role in homosexual activity in keeping with the general prohibition found in the Torah, and any male who has sex with any other male. Another point connected to this is, if it was only about power relationships, why not say that? There were other Greek words widely used by Christians, Jews, pagans, and anyone else who knew Greek to refer to pederasty. There's a term he could have used. For instance, the Greek word pederastes was widely used to refer to the love of boys, as was pediothoros, corrupter of boys, or pediothoreo, seducer of boys. Jewish authors specifically used the latitude term to condemn the practice. Another pair of Greek words, erastes and eromenos, were used to describe the older man and his boy lover in this process. So there was a wide semantic range that could have been used to describe this act, and Paul uses none of them. He takes a phrase, a Torah-shaped phrase, and applies the holiness code to New Testament believers. Malachi refers to men who thoroughly cross gender boundaries by receiving sex from other men, and Asnacortes refers to men who have sex with other males. That seems to be what the passage is saying. And Paul says this is not appropriate for the people of God. Now, That's a lot of content, isn't it? (laughs) Let's at least have some relief by talking about Jesus. (laughs) Now, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus addresses human sexuality, and we'll refer to this again in in this afternoon when we talk about Jesus, the trans community. But I want to start before we look at this passage where Jesus gives some teaching on sexuality by acknowledging the primary context of this passage is about marriage and divorce, not same-sex relationships. I acknowledge this. But it seems that under the umbrella of the argument around divorce, Jesus takes this opportunity to retrain and reset his understanding of human sexuality and relationships. Look at what it says. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. 
They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus says this, haven't you read? Bit of an insult to the scholars of his day. That at the beginning, Jesus references creation, Jesus references Genesis, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. Why then they asked did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Jesus' reference point. But it was not this way at the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Then the dis- disciples just melt down. The disciples said to him, if this is a situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. And Jesus doesn't say, no, you're taking me out of context. Jesus replied, not anyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs who were born this way. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. So just a few observations relating to who ties the theological arguments about human sexuality in Genesis. Number one, Jesus does. Jesus roots gender and marriage in the Creator's intent, not a cultural construct. Number two, Jesus closes the door allowed under the hardness of the heart of the law and resets it in the Sermon on the Mount under the New Covenant. Jesus does address sexual immorality, the word porneia, which encompassed for a first century Jew the holiness code of the book of Leviticus. And Jesus, with his Torah-shaped reality, seems to understand human relationships are designed by God with gender complementarity, male and female, as the context. So to recap, Genesis 2, Leviticus, Romans, 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy and Matthew 19, and the interpretation I've given Give me these questions again. My definition of marriage, according to the Scriptures and according to church tradition, it is a lifelong whole life union between a man and a woman. How do I get this definition? By understanding the Old Testament, the Gospels, the Epistles, and church history. How do the Scriptures support this position or this definition consistently throughout? Now, the biggest argument that people put forth today is this. Yeah, that's probably true, what you're saying, except this one thing. We're not talking about the same kind of homosexuality in the Bible. It's not that kind of homosexuality. I agree that the Bible consistently speaks against same-sex relationships, but modern society, just ancient society, just didn't understand what we understand about gender and about psychology and about biology. It was pre-scientific, they were ignorant. Now with our enlightened understanding, it's clear to see that both Paul and Jesus had no understanding of this. There was no presence of committed, monogamous, same-sex relationships in the ancient world. So I want to respond to that before we move to pastoral considerations. In the ancient world, there was a diversity of all kinds of sexual relationships and behavior, just like there is in America today. There was master-slave relationships, there was prostitution, there was gender confusion related to sexuality, cross-dressing, there was pederasty, there was committed, stable, loving, long-term relationships. Every configuration of human relationships of sexuality was present back then as it is present today. 
There was a reality and recognition of committed same-sex relationships at the time of the writing of Scripture. I don't believe it's true to say that Paul would not have known of enduring same-sex love. Two books have been written on this, C.A. Williams, Roman Homosexuality from Oxford Press, K.J. Dover, textbook from Harvard University, Greek Homosexuality. Evidence seems to be clear, according to scholars, there was enduring, loving, consensual same-sex relationships all around the empire at the time of Paul's writing. Plato's symposium in his work Protagoras mentions two men who were lovers, who were lovers for more than 10 years after they had reached adulthood. Plutarch, a modern moralist from the first and second century in a treatment on love called Dialogue on Love. In Moralia, and it's an, is an extended discourse on love comparing homosexual love with heterosexual love. He ultimately lands on heterosexual marriage, but talks about many in his day who thought that same-sex love was actually a beautiful thing. He makes a distinction in the dialogue between homosexual sex, that is mere pleasure, and so base and unworthy, and homosexual practice that is beautiful, courteous, and is a relationship. Agathon, a famous Greek poet, was known for his physical beauty. He was also known for dressing as a woman and having a lifelong consensual lover named Pisanias. A Greek philosopher, Parmenides, was in a same-sex relationship with Xenon. He was 65 years of age. Xenophon's second century AD novel, An Ephesian Tale. Now we're moving just from recorded history to literature and art. An Ephesian Tale depicts a young man named Hippothomus who falls in love with another man of the same age named Hyperathenes. Hippothomus says, Our first steps in lovemaking were kisses and caresses while I shed floods of tears. We were both the same age. No one was suspicious. For a long time, we were together passionately in love. There's evidences of some understanding of stable gay relationships, even marriages in antiquity. No, they didn't have full Roman legal status. In fact, we're the first society in recorded history to provide full legal status for same-sex relationships. But the idea of them did exist. It is clear that some Romans, Williams, it is clear that some Romans participated in formal Roman ceremonies where men married other men and these men considered themselves joined as spouses. A second century writer named Lamblicus talks about the marriage between two women named Bernakeek and Mesopotamia. Lucian of Samosota also mentions the marriage of two wealthy women named Megilla and Demonassa. The early Christian theologian Clement of Alexandria refers to women-women marriage. Ptolemy of Alexandria, a famous second century scholar, refers to women taking each other as, quote, lawful wives. Two Jewish documents that were written shortly after the New Testament refer to and forbid female marriages that were happening in their day. Several archaeological discoveries depict mutual love between women, including a funeral relief that dates back to the time of Augustus, where women are holding hands in a way that resembles the classic gesture of ancient Roman married couples. N.T. Wright says, as a classicist, I have to say when I read Plato's Symposium, when I read the accounts from the early Roman Empire of the practice of homosexuality, that it seems to me they knew just as much about it as we do. In particular, a point which is often missed, they knew a great deal about what people regard as longer-term, reasonably stable relations between two people of the same gender. This is not a modern invention. It's already there in Plato. The idea that in Paul's day it was always a matter of exploitation of younger men by older men or whatever. Of course, there was plenty of that then as there is today. But this was by no means the only thing. They knew about the whole range of options there. I think we've been conned by Mikel Foucault into thinking this is a new phenomena. Paul certainly knew of enduring same-sex love. It wasn't called homosexuality. Is that as a term coined in the 19th century? But the term heterosexuality was also coined in the 19th century, and Paul probably knew about that. So it seems also that there was... I, I'm, I mean, how are we doing, folks? Are we still hanging in there? 
<laughs> there seems to be some sort of awareness of what we would call sexual orientation. Thomas K. Hubbard, a classicist at the University of Texas, Austin, in his book Homosexuality in Greece and Rome, a source book of basic documents, says this, the coincidence of such severity of the part of moralistic writers with the flagrant and open display of every form of homosexual behavior by Nero and other practitioners indicates a culture in which attitudes about this issue increasingly, increasingly defined one's ideological and moral position. In other words, homosexuality in this era, i.e. the early imperial age of Rome, may have ceased to be merely another practice of personal pleasure and began to be viewed as an essential and central category of personal identity, exclusive of and antithetical to heterosexual orientation. Hubbard points out, points to later texts from the second to fourth centuries that reflect the perception that sexual orientation was something fixed and incurable. Now, their understanding of how they arrived at this was definitely pre-scientific. They thought sometimes people have an orientation because there's a mix of male and female sperm elements at conception, a disease of the mind and soul that was influenced indirectly by biological factors and made hard to resist due to socialization, a biological factor uh, similar to a mutated gene, sperm ducts leading to the anus, causing men to want to have sex with men, the alignment of heavenly constellations at birth. They were grasping to understand why this existed, but there seemed to be an awareness that it did. The final point I'll make about this that's interesting is that at the time of this, the Jews in the diaspora were distributed to every conceivable place on earth. Not centered in Jerusalem, distributed. Although Jewish people disagreed amongst themselves on many different interpretations of the Torah and how they were to live in exile among the Gentiles, there is unanimous agreement 500 years before and 500 years after the time of Jesus in opposition against same-sex relationships in any and every form. So it does seem to me that the argument, we are now at a time of history where we've developed a kind of same-sex relationship that's never existed before in all of recorded human history. And this is a unique thing that exists only now in our cultural moment. It seems a very, very forced historical interpretation. Now, look, this is a lot of content. I'm aware of that. And there's a lot of stuff going into this. But if you're a follower of Jesus, it really matters. It really matters for who we become. It really matters for what we do with our desire. It really matters about what it means to have Jesus as Lord and how we bring all of the stuff that's in our heart to Him and how we live this out in community. So I want to close with, I think, just perhaps a few pastoral questions, okay? Are, are people born gay? Like, what do you think as a pastor? Are people born gay? Well, I, I honestly would just respond with the American Psychological Association's response to this, which says... There is no consensus among scientists about the exact reason that an individual develops a heterosexual, bisexual, gay or lesbian orientation. Although much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, developmental, social and cultural influences on sexual orientation, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. Many think that nature and nurture both play complex roles and most people experience little or no sense of choice about their sexual orientation. And so I think that this, uh, the, the answer from the expert seems to be, I'm not sure. 
But if this is true, we should treat this with tremendous compassion. But it doesn't mean because someone has a biological predisposition to a behavior that therefore it justifies a moral category. Justin Lee himself, an affirming gay Christian, says this, just because an attraction or drive is biological doesn't mean it's okay to act on. We all have inborn tendencies to sin in any number of ways. If gay people with same-sex attractions were inborn, that wouldn't necessarily mean it's okay to act on them. And if we all agree that gay sex is sinful, that wouldn't necessarily mean that same-sex attractions aren't inborn. Is it a sin and does it have biological roots are two completely separate questions. What about this? Isn't it, I mean, honestly, isn't this just like slavery? Isn't this just like how the church has treated women? And didn't we get those things wrong? And aren't we now just getting this thing wrong? Well, to respond to slavery, slavery is nowhere in the Bible considered a creation ordinance. In fact, in the passage we read in 1 Timothy, those who are slave traders are condemned along with those in the same categorization as same-sex relationships here. Slavery was different in the first century, primarily meaning it wasn't chattel slavery. And the Scriptures actually have a progressive view around slavery. In fact, when Paul addresses the issue, he actually says, if you can get your freedom, get your freedom. So the Bible doesn't teach a vision of slavery as a moral perspective for the people of God. Now, some have abused the text and used it coercively, as have people in every religious tradition, as have non-religious people. But to say that this is God's will and is clearly taught in the Scriptures does not seem to be the case. In fact, many of the abolitionists in history, the greatest abolitionists, even Dr. King in his vision on modern civil rights, used the Bible and their vision of the Imago Dei to fuel their vision of emancipation from slavery. And in any way the church has been complicit or taught this, we should repent of that. It is shameful. It is not what Jesus taught. Again, when it comes to women, yes, the church has had seasons where it's oppressed women. Shame on us. But women are credited with equal dignity and value in the Old Testament in the Genesis account. Like nowhere else, Jesus' ministry was filled with visions of women, the empowerment of women as disciples. There was women's uh, leaders in the early church, and one of the reasons that the Christian faith spread so aggressively in the first three centuries is because women were welcome to participate in a patriarchal society. The first woman to see the resurrected Christ was a woman who had demons cast out of her. The preacher to the apostles was a delivered woman, and if that's not a theological tell about God's heart, I don't know what is. So anytime the church has got these issues wrong, they should repent of it. But the thing is, when you're talking about same-sex relationships from Genesis to Revelation, there's a consistent rejection the entire way through. Can people change their orientation? What do you think about changing your orientation? Gosh, what a, what a complex, complex question. It depends how you categorize it. It depends how you categorize it. Some people think they're gay and they're probably bisexual. Some people have a disorientation to their orientation through abuse. That's a factor that you hear of. And some people seem to be born with a persistent, lifelong orientation that desires. It's complex. There's no universal answer. 
But it doesn't mean, in spite of any of those answers, that we don't take wherever we're coming from and seek to bring it under the Lordship of Jesus. So rather than starting at the point of pain, we look to the vision of who Jesus invites us to be as his disciple, and we let that sit over the question of how we pursue discipleship. Is orientation sinful? The church in some corners has taught that. I don't think so. In the book of James, it says there's a desire that leads to sin. Passing out the difference between sinful practice and temptations and desires that come towards us. So I don't think it's sinful to have the desire, but that it becomes sin when the desire is acted upon. What about the church's hypocrisy? We need to repent of this. No one is harder on hypocrites than Jesus Christ himself. Have you read Jesus' seven woes to the Pharisees? A refresher. You sons of hell. You brood of vipers. You whitewashed tombs. When you cross land and sea in your zeal to convert, you make them twice as much the sons of hell as you are. Jesus hates hypocrisy. And any time we find it in our hearts, any time we find it in our community, it should be categorically repented of and resisted in all of its forms. It's not, for to, it's not fair to force singleness upon people. Singleness. If you come back tomorrow night, I'll preach on that question. You're not going to answer it. I'll answer it in a full sermon tomorrow night. Okay, I'm closing now, Okay. Part three, loving the gay Christian, loving the gay community. We have to learn in our modern society to love people we disagree with. This is Jesus. If you love those who love you and like those who are like you, what good is that? Even sinners love those who love them and even tax collectors do that. No, we have to have a transcendent love that crosses boundaries and crosses barriers. So even if people hate us and our position, that's okay. We will love and bless back in the way of Jesus. That's what it actually means to love someone. Now, we see this embodied the ministry of Jesus, and this is what makes Jesus so extraordinary. In Matthew 5 through 7, where Jesus gives his teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, he ratchets up. I read his teaching, cut your hand off, pluck your eye out. Jesus mentions hell more than anybody else in the Bible. And so you would expect when Jesus gets done teaching the kingdom manifesto on sexual holiness and purity, that when he got off the Sermon of the Mount, he would walk around trying to sort out some sinners. And yet the craziest thing happens in Matthew 8 and 9. Jesus heals a Roman centurion, someone covenantally outside of the boundaries of the people of God. He has lunch with Matthew, who he invites to become one of his followers, a cultural traitor and friend of the Romans. And then at lunch, lets a sinful woman touch his feet. This is extraordinary. Jesus seems to hold two things in tension, and this is the genius of Jesus. The convictions around holiness and the compassion for ministry. This is what marks Jesus Christ. Sermon on the Mount conviction, staggering, controversial, boundary-crossing compassion in how his ministry is done out. And this is what makes Jesus, Jesus. And this is why if you want to follow Jesus with integrity in this world, you will have to walk a tightrope of compassion. 
On one side, people will push you towards judgment and condemnation. And you must resist that as a total response. And on the other side, people will only push for compassion and inclusion, abandoning your ethical principles and biblical conviction. You must push back on that as a total response. In the middle is Christ himself teaching the Sermon on the Mount the way of holiness and loving and eating and welcoming and enjoying the fellowship of sinners. And how we do that, come Holy Spirit and help us. But that's the only option we have as followers of Jesus in the world today. So if you are gay, I want to say to you, I genuinely love you and I'm glad you're here. God loves you too. He loves you. If you've been hurt by the church or you've been been treated with contempt or judged, even when people joke, they're too familiar and they joke, I'm sorry that that's happened. And I, I hope that if you're gay, that just like everybody else who is wrestling with their sexuality, that you will find this a place where you can bring what you're wrestling with into the light with everybody else, and you can walk out holiness. You see, my vision is not the same vision as the cultural vision, which says, I hope that people hear about gay relationships and they never blink or think a thought about it. But I do hope that in the church, people can put forth their struggles and their wrestles like everybody else and nobody blinks because all sinners are welcome to the grace of Jesus Christ. This is the mess of church. So Paul concludes, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Let's come to Jesus with his conviction and his compassion and learn to walk in his ways. In Jesus' name, amen.